Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, everyone, welcome back to uh, the School of Christi, our group here at the Oratory for all secular Oratorians. And uh, over these past years, uh, for those who may be new to the group, we have had a, as our primary focus the Eucharist. And um, uh, to risk being repeat, repetitive, uh, uh, we've been doing this primarily because certainly the Eucharist is at the very heart of our faith and uh, our relationship with, with Christ. It's the way that we experience the deepest intimacy with him. And uh, also we have perpetual adoration here. And uh, so I think we always want to be entering more deeply into this fundamental mystery of, of our faith. And we've been using the writings of Romano Guardini to help us along over these past years. And uh, just as a refresher, Guardini wrote this book called Meditations Before, uh, Meditations Before Mass back in the early 1940s. Uh, although it doesn't read like a book written in the 1940s for some reason, it seems very uh, modern or contemporary, I should say. Uh, but it would be what you would imagine someone uh, writing about our participation in Mass and preparing ourselves to enter into this mystery in the way that the Council had envisioned, uh, at least seemed to envision, that uh, if the Eucharist is really at the heart of our faith life uh, and it shapes our identity as Christians, as well as shaping our relationship with Christ, then we should live, as it were, from Eucharist to Eucharist. And, uh, and so our preparation goes well beyond uh, simply reading the readings before Mass and uh, spending a little time in the chapel before Mass. Uh, as we've seen in Guardini's writing, uh, there is a kind of fostering of a life uh, that revolves around the Eucharist and prepares us to enter into the mystery fully. Everything from fostering solitude and silence in our life to an immersion in our study of the word of God, from crossing the threshold to the church of the church, our prayer postures during mass, how it is that we listen to the readings, how they're proclaimed, all of these things that we've, we've looked at. And we come now uh, to the last third of, of the work. And uh, tonight, I think the reflection is really the pinnacle uh, of it, where he begins to speak of, of the Eucharist, which we have already been doing the last couple of months, uh, the institution, how we understand it as memorial, and uh, but he's speaking of it tonight as reality, uh, and drives home uh, a reality, uh, sorry, a reality, drives home a thought that we really need uh, to have at the forefront of our minds, especially in our day. I think when we see a kind of waning of faith within our culture and within the church itself. There's also a waning of our belief in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist, that this isn't, isn't simply a symbolic uh, reality that we're considering when we gather to celebrate the Eucharist, that Christ truly becomes present to us, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And, uh, and this is what we receive, and we receive it in order to become what we receive. And our understanding of this reality should shape the way that we live our lives, that we live in conformity with what we become in and through the Eucharist. We are uh, nourished on the self-sacrificing love of Christ. 
And it is this reality that should be reflected in our life, our actions, our words, and uh, in our gift of ourselves to others. It's never been an easy thing to embrace. And this is what uh, Guardini will discuss with us at the end of the reflection. Really from the beginning of Christianity, it was rejected. And we know that uh, many of Jesus' own disciples could not bear to hear, hear it. And so left his company uh, after he insisted on, unless we eat his body and drink his blood, we have no life within us. And so this is what Guardini is going to help us reflect upon in a deeper way this evening. So it's a very rich uh, reflection and very deep, and hopefully it will be something that's transformative for us as well. As again, uh, again, the uh, reflection is in the chat section, the PDF for it, if you don't have a copy of the text. And we'll begin with uh, the uh, italicized print, which is just my little preparatory paragraph. In the following reflection, Guardini turns his attention to the reality that is made present in the Eucharist, the importance of the Christian's understanding of the urgency and power of the words, this is my body and this is my blood. Guardini warns, it is not only wrong, but sacrilegious to tamper with these words. What they express is simplest truth and what takes place, pure reality. He who speaks them is neither a great nor the greatest religious personality of millennia, but the son of God. The priest speaks them in obedience and must do so with a certain amount of fear and trembling for the one who commands them has all power over heaven and earth. He who hears these words receives them and are reminded that they express the mysterium fidei, the mystery of faith. Thus we are to receive them not critically or testing the command, but in the obedience of faith. Where others may doubt the Lord, our response must be that of Peter's. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of everlasting life, and we have come to believe and to know that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. So the mystery of faith, uh, that this is not simply uh, a theological idea or principle. It's not uh, something psychological. It's not uh, something of a mere symbol that a symbolist might uh, unpack for us. What Guardini is telling us is that this is reality itself, and not just any reality, but the reality of our God, who is drawing us into his own life, and who has given us the Holy Eucharist and the way to, that it is instituted in order that it might be fo followed in the way that he intended. And so these are not words that we can alter by whim or in a way that we think would uh, open up the mystery more fully for, for others to, to understand, uh, that there's an aspect of it that is not understandable for us in the sense that uh, can't be contained by the, the limits of our mind and intellect, that it is a mystery that must be revealed to us in and through the gift of faith. And so with a kind of humility and obedience, we approach the Holy Eucharist, praying that God, by his grace, would open our minds and our hearts that we might see and understand what it is that we receive and that it might bear fruit 
within our lives. And uh, it's difficult, I think, for the modern person uh, to allow this to happen, even for the modern person of faith, that we often like to pull things apart, as it were, in order to see how they work, uh, to think about them in a way uh, that is stripped down so that we can understand what they mean. And so we have this uh, tendency to deconstruct things. And, uh, but to act this way in, uh, in the face of the gift of the Eucharist, uh, would it in a sense be, you know, almost blasphemous to do so? Or uh, at best, it would be something that would severely undermine uh, our experience of that mystery in our life. That whenever we seek to, to bring God down to our size, he ceases to be God. And the moment that we do that with the Holy Eucharist, when we banalize it, we, we risk that very thing that it ceases to be what Christ intends it to be for us. And I think this is what has concerned uh, many people, especially I think over the last 60 years, wondering about that. You know, in some ways, have we undermined our very experience of the Holy Eucharist uh, by making the alterations that we have? I'm not saying that's true, but I think... Uh, maybe in the way that we celebrate the Holy Eucharist, is there a way in which we do that that uh, undermines the kind of, again, the fear and trembling that uh, Gordini will talk about with which we should approach the, the, the mystery of the Holy Eucharist, that uh, it is no simple meal that we are receiving as our very nourishment, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our, of our Lord. And so there should be a sense of awe that we have as we approach it. And when we seek to turn it too much into, uh, you know, a, a gathering, you know, a family gathering, as it were, a Sunday dinner kind of thing, then we risk uh, losing, losing that sense of it. Ren. Um. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, often I kind of fall into that when I'm struggling um, with faith in particular. Like I'll do these little walkthroughs in my mind of like cause and effect from the beginning of time. Like what thing can I get myself to like fully mentally consent to? And then from there I can walk step by step until I get to like, oh, that's why I'm, that's why like, reparation works like like literally I'll just try to like kind of construct a science of things in my head um and sometimes I even think of like Edith Stein's book like the science of the cross just just the title of it is interesting I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it I love Edith Stein but um but it's an interesting thing to title something the science of the cross because it just indicates a means by which we come to understand things through our own natural faculties. Um, and it just seems like the more we find ourselves capable of knowing in the past hundred years, the more, like it just becomes, um, the more and more faith becomes dependent on things, like even sort of the obsession with like the star of Bethlehem, like that's nice and everything, but 
the very fact that like we want to to take it apart and go back in time in the sky and find it like we're we're just it feels like there's a embarrassment in not being able to scientifically back up um what we believe and i i find myself falling into that all the time and i think it's just very hard to believe things because that's what we believe or because this gift of faith has been given to us not with like some clear line of reasoning um yeah right well you know i think there's a certain amount of that that would be expected or that you know of us as human beings that we would seek as as much as we can within the limits of our intellect to understand the mysteries of our faith and the teachings of our faith. And, but how we approach that uh, can make all the difference in the world. You know, I think the issue is more philosophical, you know, this tendency to deconstruct things, uh, again, to, to pull them apart, uh, you know, to, Again, in, in a sense that we can sort of c control them, uh, whereas there's a difference between that and sort of the science of the cross, as you said, which would be, you know, a study of the mystery, you know, in the deepest way possible, you know, meditation upon observation of that reality as fully as we can uh, in and through the lens of faith. Uh, aided by intellect, but, you know, our, our faith is really what's going to open us up to the deepest aspects of that reality. And to study it through faith is going to allow us to see and comprehend more. And uh, unfortunately, we often don't approach the Eucharist in that way, through that lens of faith, you know, deepening and aiding our understanding, you know, drawing us into a deeper comprehension of what Christ is done for us. The next month's group will be even more striking where Gordini begins to talk about the particular hour, time, and eternity. And that would, because Christ himself is eternal, that all of his acts are eternal as well. And that there's something about the Eucharist that is eternal, even though it takes place within time and we are drawn into that reality, the reality that we are drawn into is eternal. This is the, the gift of the eternal love of God that is self-emptying and is given to us in the Holy Eucharist. But what we uh, uh, what we participate in uh, isn't bound by the limits that we are bound by. And uh, and so, in some sense, we have to allow ourselves to be drawn on into the mystery. And in the same way that we will see that Peter did, as we will reflect upon the gospel, in particular the bread of life discourse, that you know he was willing to allow himself to be drawn first and foremost by his faith and his faith in Christ as the Son of God, than to reject what he could not comprehend at that moment. Okay. But won't we get into the text itself and at least allow, you know, Gordini to begin to flesh things out for us, and then we'll open up for, for comments here. At the Last Supper, we saw how the Lord established institution upon institution, the memorial of his saving love and its covenant between God and the new holy people upon the memorial of the liberation from Egypt under the old covenant, now completed. 
For he to whom all power and authority has been given declares it terminated, since all that it promised and prepared for has been fulfilled. Now the new valid commemorative feast is there to remain until the Lord returns at the end of time. Those who believe in him are to come together and do this, to do exactly what he did on that last evening. The command involves him too, for when his followers obey and do, what happened then will happen again, just as when he himself acted. They are to take bread, give thanks, bless it, and speak over it the words he spoke. They are to take the chalice and again thank, bless, speak as he did. Not anyone is entitled to do this, but those whom Jesus addressed at that time, his table companions at the last Passover, the apostles to whom he had already committed his authority. After them, those to whom they in turn would pass on their powers, the bishops and their assistants in the divine office, the priests. What these bearers of office do will be no private act. The whole concept of office suggests something that lies not in the sphere of personally creative or the spontaneous, but in the law, in the delegation of authority. The office exists not for its bearer, but for all, for the whole. When the priest performs what the Lord commanded, all act with him, so that after the Lord's death, one can truly say that they, the believers, continued steadfastly in the teaching of the apostles and in the communion of the breaking of the bread and in the, in the prayers. And continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread in their houses, they took their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and being in favor with all the people. So he gives us a little bit of a reminder of what he's done over these past months and in the past reflections that you remember he ties certainly the, the Holy Eucharist to the Passover meal and the bringing out of the Hebrews from their enslavement in Egypt. And what that points to is what Christ does for us on the cross, his exodus, his drawing us, uh, out of the bondage of our slavery, not to any worldly authority, but to evil itself and to death. And that just like the Passover was commemorated with a meal uh, that uh, was seen within the eyes of the people as a participation in that event, drawing them into that participation, in a more radical way, we find that within the Holy Eucharist, that in our consuming not uh, simply of, of lamb, of bread, of bitter herbs, but of the body and blood of Christ, we are drawn radically into his death and so also his resurrection from the dead. We carry about in ourselves the death of Christ uh, in order that we might come to know the fullness of the life of the resurrection. And uh, so everything leading up to this event of the celebration of the Eucharist is fulfilled in Christ. And so Paul can speak quite literally of a termination of the old covenant. And maybe a better word would be completion or fulfillment of that covenant in Christ. And the new covenant in the new people 
not simply one nation, but all who embrace Christ in, in faith. And it's interesting, the points that he draws forward here for us to consider, and then I'll open it up for any thoughts that you have. Uh, again, that it is to be done as he commands, and not done by anyone but and, uh, who wants to, to celebrate it. That Christ sets it up in a specific way, and it's not a private act. And so there's not meant to be experimentation. There isn't, uh, this isn't meant to be a spontaneous kind of act upon the part of one individual, that he's given that office to fulfill, not for himself, but for the church as a whole, for the faithful. And in his doing that, they all participate in that reality in a perfect and complete way when they receive the Holy Eucharist. And so to make the Eucharist somehow uniquely his own by allowing his personality to dominate and step forward uh, to the point where it becomes a kind of entertainment uh, in a very real way can diminish uh, the vision that is being set forth here, and, and more important, I think, for us to understand, it can diminish what Christ himself intended, that certainly gifts can be used, you know, in the preaching of the gospel and uh, the manner in which the Eucharist is celebrated, the reverence with which is celebrated, but the, the priest, in a sense, is to be transparent. He's to act in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. And he should really labor, uh, not only in his actions at that given moment, but I think in his life as a whole, to be as conformed to Christ as fully as he can. And in the way that he lives his life, his virtue, the depth of his prayer, his obedience to the Father's will, his willingness to embrace the cross in his life. It is all these things that would allow him to celebrate the Holy Eucharist as perfectly as he possibly can. And I think in our day, there has been this sense that, you know, uh, an individual is to bring all of his personal gifts or talents to bear upon this event. And I think that's why we've found over these last 50 or 60 years, this kind of bizarre experimentation, you know, performances taking place during the mass, uh, where the attention is really drawn fully off of Christ. And I don't even want to go into examples of it because I think it's just a distraction and it gets us agitated when we think too much about it. But uh, you get what I'm leading at there, though, leading, uh, leading us to, though, that our, our conformity is to be to that of Christ and not, not just in the words. Certainly, that's what Guardini's emphasizing here. But, you know, the priest is to conform himself as well as the congregation to conform themselves to Christ in every way and to offer ourselves as fully as we can at that moment with, uh, through with and in Christ uh, in order that we, we might enter into the mystery. Uh, we don't want to get into a situation, I think, where, you know, that our experience of the Eucharist does not transcend the very room that we happen to be in, whether it's a beautiful chapel, cathedral, or some auditorium. You know, it's uh, 
but often that is the case. Any thoughts on this introductory paragraph from Gordini? So fairly clear, and he sort of repeated some of the things that we've considered, but I think it's helpful going forward. Okay. From this, we see that at the time, the Christians were still living in the old order, observing the prescribed services of the temple as others did. They had not yet realized that the temple with its services, together with the entire order of the Old Testament, was ended and that new life the, a new life pattern was slowly taking shape. So you know, we remember Christ saying, you know, not one dot, not one iota of the law shall you know, disappear, but it will all come to fulfillment in him, that he is the word of God made flesh. And so the perfection of the Father's will and of his mind is being made present in Christ. And so there's no need to cling to that which is of a lesser nature when we have the fullness of it within Christ and receive him in the, in the Holy Eucharist. We receive the incarnate word of God into our very being. And, and so that should be reflected in the way also that, that we worship, that how we believe and what we believe shapes the way then that we, we worship our God. Already, the little community has something entirely of its own, the ceremonial breaking of bread in their houses. In all probability, groups of early Christians met in homes large enough for the purpose. At first, there was simply an ordinary meal, an expression of fraternal unity, and a means of helping the poor among them. Sometimes, however, probably on Sundays, the meal took on a special festive note, Acts 27, it was always a real meal, though judging from St. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, it was not always an entirely spiritual affair. So we remember hearing him lament the fact that people were drinking to the point of intoxication and not, uh, not sharing with others. So the poor among them were being left without food, sufficient food. And, uh, and so there wasn't the spirit of charity that was existent, you know, even as they were gathering together in a fraternal way. And so Paul had to rebuke them. The epistle is concerned chiefly with current abuses, but it also suggests how those gatherings were supposed to be and how at least in the beginning they usually were. The believers shared together the agape or meal of love and community in the sight of God, to which each contributed something. On Sundays and special days of the celebration, longer and more impressive was deeply imbued with the memory of the Lord. On those days, the one who presided over the meal, the apostle or his representative, related the story of Jesus' life and teaching and salutary death. In the first epistle to the Corinthians, for instance, we see St. Paul urging the believers not to forget that they proclaim the death of the Lord whenever they partake. The proclamation referring to the solemn pronouncement and the praise of the sacred mysteries to follow. Here again, the old Passover tradition of the host reverent account of the Exodus from Egypt, from the Egyptian slavery is terminated and supplanted by the message of our liberation through Jesus Christ. 
So you, you see again here how the particular belief in Christ and his redemptive mystery alters the way that the community worships, although there were behavioral problems that had to be addressed even then by, by St. Paul. And, uh, and the, the last remark, I think, is the most interesting for us, that the story of the Passover, which would be read, if any of you have been, have been at a Seder meal, you'd be familiar with it, how they read through the Passover event, that in place of that then uh, comes the, the reading of, of, our, of Christ's salvific acts, which end with his, his death upon the cross and resurrection. This is what is, is read and given account of by, by the one who presides. Then, at a certain moment in the meal, the Lord's representative took bread and the cup, acting as the Lord had commanded him to do. Before this, it has been, commem been commemoration in the spirit, a speaking and hearing, weighing and accepting. Now it is still commemoration, but of a totally different kind. For that which was commemorated during the first part of the mass was not actually present, save in the imagination of the believers in the continually efficacious love and grace which stirred in their hearts and souls. Now the significance of the event changes. The moment the priest, as the Lord's representative, speaks the words, this is my body, what is commemorated is also actually present in truth and reality. So it makes present what it signifies, sort of the fundamental understanding of sacrament for us. So something changes radically in the celebration. There's not simply an account uh, of the, the Lord's life and the hearing of that, uh, both read and spoken about, uh, but now the reception of, the, of that reality in the most profound kind of way, uh, where Christ becomes present in truth and reality. And this is what Guardini is going to emphasize in the remainder of the reflection, that there is something that comes into place here for us as men and women of faith that no other had ever experienced prior to Christ. And it's a participation in the very life of God and the receiving of our God in and through the gifts that are transformed into his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Okay? So the last pa paragraph is rather striking. You know, that uh, we, we make, and how, how it must have been experienced and uh, felt by the early community would have been a striking thing. And why it would have also been a, a horror for Paul to know that all those festivities leading up to the celebration of this uh, became uh, an obstacle to that unity, that there were divisions between those who are wealthy and those who are poor. And so then how do you celebrate the whole Eucharist uh, if th this is your attitude in merely celebrating these festive meals uh, were, that were to, to bring about a kind of unity within the community, to draw them together? And... Uh, and so we will find Paul and do find him 
uh, you know, in his rebukes, reminding them if they don't discern the, the body of Christ, the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, that they end up eating and drinking to their own condemnation, that to, to receive it unworthily, uh, not only in their poor behavior uh, prior to it, but without discerning the true presence of Christ, then they, they receive in, in a sacrilegious kind of way. So he picks up, this is my body, this is my blood. Under no circumstance may the is in these holiest of sentences be interpreted as means or is a symbol of my body and blood. If ever the Lord's admonition, let your speech be yes, yes, and no, no, and whatever is beyond these comes from the evil one, was deeply urgent, it is here. It is not only wrong, but sacrilegious to tamper with these words. What they express is simplest truth, and what takes place pure reality. He who speaks them is neither a great nor the greatest religious personality of millennia, but the Son of God. His words are no expression of mystical profundity, but a command of him who has all earthly and heavenly power. They have no equivalent in human speech, for they are words of omnipotence. We can compare them only with the words of the Lord. When he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there came a great calm, or to the leper, I will, be thou made clean, or to Jairus' dead child, girl, arise. Their real equivalent is the Father's be, light made, from which creation itself emerged. So see the first chapter of Genesis. So what, what he's saying here is that there is the power of God within these words, the same power through which all things have been created under heaven and earth, the words through which the leper was healed, the young girl raised from the dead, that the, the words take, this is my body, this is my blood, carry within them that same divine power. And we should see them in no other way. Uh, and in fact, their equivalent is the Father's be, that something new is coming into being when we receive the Holy Eucharist. We become something radically new, a new genesis, if you will, is taking place. We're, we're, we're made new, recreated in Christ, if you will. Carol, you had a thought. Uh, yeah, so my thought was, um, so um, I really like that sentence, um, talking about the father's baby, mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it just reminds me of, um, like, the fiat, let it be done to me, like, let creation be, Mary's response, let it be done, and then the same, uh, the same thing at the mass, let it be. Right. Yes. Me of Mary. That's a very good point. In fact, we say amen uh, when we receive the Holy Eucharist. So we say, so be it. And in, in the sense that, again, we become what we receive. We were saying that, you know, I embrace this gift as it is given to me, not in a passive way, 
but realizing the transformation that it calls for, that my life is in a sense no longer my own. I live for God. And my actions are no longer to be uh, judged simply in accord with my own reason, but in accord now with the, the will of with the will of God. And you know we become Christ and one with him in and through receiving him. And again, you know, I, I think we can see a loss of a sense of this, not just reverence and awe, but our dignity and destiny in Christ when we receive the Holy Eucharist. That there should be something profound uh, that takes place in the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see others after they receive Holy Communion. That they bear, they become God bearers. And Mary's Theotokos. And when we say, so be it, as, as you said, as she said, let it be done to me, uh, we are saying, let this, amen, let this be the reality now. I become one body, I become one with Christ. Carol, did you have a follow up to that? Your hand's still up? No. Ren. Um, in that little sentence, in that little part where he was talking about the things that Christ said that were immediately um, actualized and made clear. Um, the thing I was thinking about was how many times he told people their sins were forgiven and that that wasn't just like, oh, what a nice thing to say, or like another way of saying God loves you. Like him saying that was the actual moment in which they were forgiven Right. And and that those were actualizing words um, that the priest still says to this day with the same power um, in them. And also made me think, that was my primary thought, but it, it did make me think of that passage in scripture, which I feel like I don't know the answer to. So I always think of it. Um, I always think to myself when it's read at mass, well, I, I don't know, um, is when he says, uh, what is easier to say, rise up and walk, or your sins are forgiven? And then he just turns, he's like, but that you may believe. He, and I always wonder, like, what is the answer to that question? Or like, what's he really getting at? But, um, but I just think it's very beautiful that that would be one of the things he says that's an immediately actualized thing. Right. Right. I, I think neither are easy to say. And I think the, the harder thing is to say your sins are forgiven. And with the saying of it and the, the reality behind it, the other reality falls. You know, new creation comes into being. We're healed and made whole, but far more than just in a physical way. You know, this is what they were craving for. Show us a sign by what authority you do these things. And so you know, they had not grasped yet, and they could not grasp where that power came, would come from, to be able to say your sins are forgiven. It flows from the cross, and you know, they would only understand, and Christ's apostles would only understand that you know, after the resurrection. Uh, but every time that he extends that forgiveness and mercy to others, that eternal reality, if you will, is, is made present to them. You know, that forgiveness comes from somewhere and is made possible, you know, 
in the same way that it is made possible for all of us. And uh, again, I think we, we fail to see that when we hear these stories and you know, they're scandalized by the fact that he says your sins are forgiven you because they believe that's only something that God can do is forgive someone their sins. Uh, but, you know, little did they know at what cost this was going, you know, to come at, you know, in, in terms of his embrace of the cross on our behalf, that he would be taking upon himself the sin of the world. And again, not just, you know, in sort of a passive way, but in the most active and full way possible. Okay. Christ gave these sacred words to those who he delegated to guard and execute his memorial. Their origin does not lie in the priest or bishop who speaks them, but in Christ who gave them to priest and bishop. Yet because they are God-given, given entirely through grace, they become the priest's own words when he speaks them in obedience to Christ. Hence the Mass is a commemoration, but a commemoration of a very special kind. By the words of the transubstantiation, what took place on Monday, Thursday, Christ's gift of self as nourishment for eternal life takes place again in a form which also outwardly resembles the Savior's act on that holy night. So, you know, the priest is acting, again, not in accord with his own will, but as an act of obedience, fulfilling the will of God, you know, acting in the person of Christ. And so, like Christ, being obedient to the Father's will. It's not something that he, you know, brings about by his own power, by his own authority or gift but by grace alone. And uh, again, you know, this should be reflected in the way uh, that the mass is celebrated, you know, a, a kind of reverence, but also a restrained quality in the sense of that one is acting in accord with the will of God you know, that we're not engaged in a self-directed act in that moment. And so I'm not saying that, you know, the priest should be, you know, dour and, you know, you know, expressionless. But what I am saying is that there should be a kind of reserve there in the celebration of the Eucharist uh, so that it, it doesn't, it never loses the sense of what Guardini is talking about here. Not only the, the most profound mystery, but an act of obedience and according in accord with the will of God and an act of grace. That there should be never this sense that, you know, that it's driven again by uh, the peculiarities of any given priest and his personality. And, you know, I think we saw for years, you know, that sort of... Uh, put forward in seminaries and encouraged and this kind of experimentation encouraged and, and perhaps still done in so many different ways, I think, even by the most well-intentioned priest. And, you know, certainly they can love the Lord and, you know, be seeking to serve him in every way. But, uh, you know, often there is this sense that I think that has more to do with formation of, you know, this need to make it exciting, 
you know, we've heard that, you know, the, this idea so often that somehow to attract people to Holy Mass, we have to do something to make it more attractive than simply allowing the reality, the extraordinary reality, to be a, a, something that's enough to speak to the depth, depths of a person's faith and religiosity that they are drawn immediately to participate in it. That you don't have to speak of obligation, that there's something failing in our catechesis if we, in a sense, if we have to use the word obligation or if we have to try to make the mass more exciting in order to get people there. Carol, chatty tonight, <laughs> must be that tea. <laughs> yeah, it, it had caffeine in it. Um, I mean, I, your comment just, it just, it, it just boggles my mind a little bit when you think about the reality of God, which we can't even grasp. I mean, who can even grasp who God is? You just look at, you know, the intimacy with which he relates to us. And then, you know, his extraordinary grandeur, which is beyond comprehension, you know, and the idea that we as creature can improve upon or make more exciting God's creation, you know, God's institution. It just, it's like, how do you even wrap your mind around that as a concept? I know. You know? Well, right. And I, well, I think part of it is allowing ourselves to be drawn into the mystery. I think we often, as our starting point, we have this idea of wrapping, I have to wrap my mind around that, or I'll have to think about that for a little while. You know, that's typically our starting point, rather than uh, praying for the gift of faith and seeking to purify our hearts and allowing ourselves uh, to be drawn by God in, into the mystery in order that we might comprehend in and through the gift of faith. That's what we should be praying for, faith to be, be able to see what God has done for us and made present to us in his only begotten son, that we might see the depth of that love more and more clearly, and that we might respond to that love more and more perfectly in our life. And, you know, we get back if we think, can think of St. Isaac the Syrian saying, you know, knowledge of the cross is found in the cross or in the embrace of the cross, that in faith, our willingness to take up our cross daily, you know, and to not simply imitate Christ, but to embrace the cross as uh, united to his own in and through uh, our faith, that we come to understand something of its redemptive quality and why he calls us to take this path, why it is this way that he's called us to follow him. Come follow me. And then he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. And, you know, we don't simply wrap our mind around the cross, you know, and the same way we don't simply wrap our minds around the Holy Eucharist, we, in faith, and in a humble faith, have to allow ourselves to be drawn into that mystery and allow God to show us. And that means becoming vulnerable and 
and it's I think it's for this reason that Christ makes himself perfectly vulnerable. You know, if you think about it, a, a host, small, you know, to be placed on our tongue or on, or on the hand, you know, so absolutely vulnerable so as to be completely non-threatening, you know, and uh, in order that we might consider receiving our God as he gives himself to us and enters into us without falling dead on the spot, you know, and, uh, and so I think that's why, you know, many Catholics, I think, can go to Mass and even go to Mass every week and receive the Holy Eucharist and have a sense of belief in what is taught by the church. And yet their participation in that reality can be limited by their unwillingness, our unwillingness, in, in, to make ourselves vulnerable in the reception of this gift. And I think in part, this is why so many of his disciples left when he teaches this, because you know he he, he teaches them about the Holy Eucharist, and he won't relent when they object to it. And the words he uses, if you remember, are if are the actual words for the action of eating and drinking itself. So take eat. The closest English equivalent we would have to that would be gnaw. You know, chew. And the same thing with drink, you know, it's, you know, we can sort of sanitize that in English, but it, it's more like the slurping, you know, the kind of noise that a person makes when they are drinking. So he wasn't being, uh, you know, it's hard. They were having a hard time with it because he wasn't, you know, speaking in uh, terms of symbol. He was speaking in the, in a supremely realistic kind of fashion, which would have been understandable to the, the men of this time, that that's how they would have thought about things as well. And so here he was speaking of himself and they're eating his own flesh, his flesh and blood, and they go nuts over it, saying, you know, I can't accept this, and they walk away. It's only faith that allows Peter to say, okay, it's because I believe you are the son of God, that I, I will allow, you know, that I will enter into this mystery and embrace it, even though I do not understand it. It shows us the extraordinary nature of Peter's faith. You know, not, not only his capacity to proclaim Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, but his willingness to allow himself to be led you know, into this deepest mystery and eventually to be led, you know, to his own cross. Yes. I'm so sorry. I won't talk the whole night of frost. Um, <laughs> You've already talked a couple times. But. I know. <laughs> um, I, you know, when you're reading the ladder of divine ascent, um, exile, and renunciation come before everything else, including all the really hard work of faith and all of the virtues that would build up faith. 
And the first thing is leaving behind everything else and just running on like, on an impulse of faith, you know, it just like, if the spark is lit, you just run with it and then deal with everything else later once you've gotten away from the world. Um, and so I think there's something really beautiful in what Peter says at that moment where he's like, well, like before he even says that, he says like, well, where else would we go? Like, like he doesn't have anything else. Like he left everything. He left his business. He left all the people like he clearly hadn't burned every bridge because they like ran off, you know, and went back to fishing after the crucifixion. But, um, but there's something just really beautiful in that line, like not even fully understanding or even being fully comfortable with it. It's like, well, I've already given up everything and I'm already here. So I'm just going to kind of stick with it and like, let you keep talking to us about it and hope I like, hope I understand in time because like, who else am I going to go to? And maybe that's what we need sometimes is just being like, well, this isn't what I thought it was going to be, but I kind of left everything else already. So I might as well stick around. Um, Well, he had been drawing them deeper all along. I mean, it was in the beginning that they all make that act of faith, you know, come follow me. And there's an encounter with the divine that allows them to drop everything and follow after him. And it gets more difficult, you know, over time when he begins to talk about forgiving one's enemies and not resisting the one who is evil. And when he begins to speak about, you know, going to Jerusalem where he'll be arrested and crucified. Uh, it becomes more and more difficult for them to allow themselves to be guided by by faith, led by faith. And, and that's certainly true of the Holy Eucharist as well. But, you know, all, all grace, I think, you know, we simply have to abandon ourselves to that as well as we can. Okay, let's move on to the next paragraph here. The commemoration, is that where I'm at? The commemoration of the mass is unique. Since it does not exist at all on a human level, it is impossible to judge it from here or to compare it with other apparently similar religio-symbolic acts. So there's nothing that we can point to in the world or other world religions that is like this, that is distinctive, and a unique aspect of Christianity. Since it does not exist at all, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Who are we to define the limits of its possibilities? All we can do is to hear, for what is taking place is revelation, and it could not be revealed more simply or directly. There can be no question of symbolism here. The apostles were no modern psychologists or symbolists but men of antiquity, whose thinking was characteristically objective and realistic. They had not forgotten the great speech at Capernaum, in which Jesus had insisted, for many to the point of intolerability, on the fact that he was to offer himself as real food and real drink, thus forcing his followers to an uncompromising either-or of faith. 
There is not a trace of symbolism in the Acts of the Apostles or in the first epistle to the Corinthians or in any of the earliest Christian writings on this sacred mystery. Without exception, it is taken as revelation, which we cannot call into question, asking whether it is possible. It is a commemoration and a command of God for whom all things are possible. Our attitude can be neither that of testing nor of criticizing. It can only be that of belief, and belief implies obedience. As it is a question of mystery, we must acknowledge it solely because of God's word. As soon as we lose sight of this fact, everything is lost. That is why there is a call of warning and reminding just prior to the heart of the Mass the consecration, the call, Mysterium Fidei. Do not forget, we have here a mystery of faith. It's still within the Mass, you, you remember it, the mystery of faith, and we say, when we eat this body and drink this blood, we claim your death till you come again. And, uh, and so the point is well taken in the, this last paragraph. You know, it's we project and have this tendency to project backwards onto Christ and to the apostles, a kind of psychological and philosophical view that would not have existed and that did not manifest itself within the scriptures or within the earliest of sacred writings or, or of, uh, of church writings, that, uh, that this was revelation that God had revealed himself in this fashion, and also that it is a command, do this, take, eat, take, drink. So it's an act of obedience, and it's a revelation. God reveals himself in the nature of his love, of his mercy, of his compassion, his desire to nourish us to everlasting life in and through it. And so we can't criticize it. I can't say, well, he sh should have revealed himself in some other way, you know, to us or done something different. You know, what, what, why this of all things? And, uh, you know, certainly there's a lot that we can turn back to, you know, and looking at the Old Testament and certainly the lamb that, you know, he's the lamb of God and the Passover meal, all the things that Gordini has spoken about here. But uh, what he's revealed here, though, is something radically distinctive and that is also, again, a command. So it's not something that we choose whether or not we do or participate in. And, you know, so often I think in our day, there's a kind of take it or leave it kind of attitude. And I think even with the recent pandemic, you know, the sense of, well, we're relieved from the obligation. And I understand that, especially for those who might be, you know, vulnerable, you know, because of health reasons and things like that. But there are a heck of a lot of young people who, even after things have sort of moved uh, in a direction where we have a better understanding of, of the, the virus itself and how to protect ourselves from it, you know, I think there is a malaise that has come in that I think is sort of reflective that the, you would think that there would be a kind of urgency. And I've seen it in a cer certain 
faithful, you know, this kind of longing and urgency to receive Holy Communion again. That it was painful, ter- terribly painful to have the churches shut down and not to be able to have the sac- sacraments. And s- still a very painful thing that there are s- such profound limitations placed upon that reality. Uh, I think I remember saying to everyone here that when we were first allowed to hear confessions, it was, was that still March? I think everything shut down for a while and we weren't even allowed, we weren't allowed to do anything. Uh, and uh, eventually we were allowed to hear confessions outside and it was bitter cold and it was snowing on certain days and raining most of the other days. And people were thanking us for being there as they knelt in puddles to go to confession. And, and it's because I think they, they have the sense of, of what Gordini is describing here, that what we are given here is something that you know, God has revealed to us of himself and of his love but also has commanded us to do. And we don't bring ourselves to it simply when it's convenient, you know, or, or when, we, when we feel ready or want to do it. This cry, this call reminds us of the speech at Capernaum, where the same possibility of rejecting salvation had been displayed and so, you know, it's possible, you know, with what we see, you know, in the diminishment of the faith and the negligence in regard to catechesis and the passing on of the faith, negligence in regard to our, our practice and the zeal of those who do have faith, but uh, participate in the Eucharist half-heartedly and not bearing witness to the extraordinary nature of the gift, that what is it on you know, at stake here, what is on the line is salvation itself. That unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And and so, you know, our again, our belief in this is not something that, you know, we can sort of take or let go as we please. And it should give a kind of urgency again to how we live our life, but also an urgency in our evangelization. You know, I think so often evangelization has become, well, you don't really tell anyone what you what is true, what has been revealed to us, that somehow there would be a lack of charity in that. Well, you know, what is the greater lack of charity if we, we are not proclaiming what Christ has told us is the the means of salvation and that unless we receive it, we do not participate in eternal life. So to me, it seems that our lack of urgency, you know, that loss of that missionary zeal within within the life of Christians is a, a reflection of our lack of charity as well as a lack of our faith. That both would consume us with a zeal to proclaim Christ present in the Holy Eucharist. And, you know, it should be part of the reason why we have 
you know, we have perpetual adoration here, not simply to serve ourselves. You know, it's to open up this reality for others to see and encounter in the most profound and concrete fashion. You know, to keep the building open, which most churches probably were open up back in my mom's day. You know, 20, they didn't, you know, 24 hours a day. They probably didn't lock the buildings. You know, people could come and go any time of the day. And, you know, uh, now you can barely find a church that is open. And again, that's suggestive of something highly problematic, not, not simply the security issues. Many of his disciples, therefore, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were murmuring at this, said to, said to them, does this scandalize you? At one point in the gospel, it says they murmured in protest. They were the first Protestants. <laughs> Just sort of throw that out there. I remember preaching. I remember preaching that from the pulpit one time, and I knew the people who were in the congregation, and they're the kindest souls. But I said that, and you know, they—I forget what they, I think they're Presbyterian, and I said that you know they were the, the first here, are the first Protestants, you know, who were complaining, murmuring against Christ and, and the Holy Eucharist. Uh, Does this scandalize you? He asked. What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some among you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who should betray him. And he said, this is why I've said to you, no one can come to me unless he is enabled to do so by my Father. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. Jesus therefore said to the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter therefore answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of everlasting life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of God. John 6 is something, you know, we do read it every year, and it's something that we should probably read more frequently than we typically do as a way of strengthening our faith in the gift of the, of the Holy Eucharist. Uh, but also uh, the necessity of grace, the grace of God that enables us to come to the Lord in this way, and also the faith to believe in it. And uh, we have to ask ourselves why, why, again, why they found it so intolerable. You know, it's, you know, part of it was, you know, not because of the extraordinary aspect of this, of him saying that he was going to give himself to them as their food, but the underlying implication of that, that if he was giving himself to them in this way, then they would have to give themselves to others in a similar way. That if this is the nature of the love of God, if Christ is going to allow himself to be broken and poured out in love for others in this kind of radical fashion, then those who unite and are united with him in the Holy Eucharist to receive him are called to be willing to allow ourselves to be broken and poured out 
in love for others, to withhold nothing as Christ has withheld nothing from us in the gift of himself in the Holy Eucharist. And for many, that would be a far more terrifying thought than Christ saying, you know, this is my body, this is my blood. The idea of allowing ourselves to be broken and poured out in love for others is, you know, requires an equal, if not greater, faith to, you know, in doing so. And uh, we saw, saw what it meant for the apostles, and in particular, what it meant for Peter, you know, that, that faith would require that he would, you know, allow himself to be bound and take him where he did not want to go when he was, when he was older, that he would be crucified like the Lord himself. And so I, I, I find it to be a very powerful reflection and perhaps one of the most powerful that we've read, although some of them have been extraordinary on, in their own right, uh, you know, that his, you know, pushing us to this level here, you know, of not allowing ourselves to see the apostles as, you know, uh, psychologists or symbolists you know, and not allowing ourselves to move in that direction, uh, which in a sense has become the Protestant way of, of viewing things, you know, seeing it simply as symbol. You know, Christ was speaking symbolically that he truly didn't mean that he was giving himself in this way. Andrea. Hello, Father David. Um, so yeah. first, excuse me, I've not been sleeping well, so. Sometimes the words don't come. <laughs> but uh, as, uh, as uh, you were talking before that, you know, people don't, uh, don't tell others about uh, the Eucharist, um, what is to be found there that we don't evangelize, uh, about the ultimate food, right? And how about you are what you eat, right? Don't you really want to be that? Then I, I was thinking that, you know, everybody's talking this herb, this fruit, this uh, vegetable, this piece of meat, this, 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 that has this... Uh, this vitamins, this will uh, detoxify you, will give you energy, you'll do this, you'll do that, you know, constantly everyone is up, uh, singing the praises of some food, you know? Or diet, I thought, right? you know. Keto. Hmm? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Eat meat. <laughs> I thought, you know, we should sing the praises of the Lord in mm -hmm. the Eucharist, right? Uh, eat, eat the Eucharist, you know? It's a uh, that gives you everything, you know, king of king of the universe, you know, ultimate life-giving force uh, has everything that you need now and for eternity. Um, number one. Um, number two, you know, I also, I was very eager to follow the Lord until he actually asked me to. And then I thought, Lord, you know, why do I have to do anything, you know? I mean, you're, you're big and I'm small. Why don't you just do all the work and I just relax you watching you, you know? <laughs> Um, number two, and then um, number three, a, a thought that has a, a, arisen in my mind lately, it may be a little weird, but I always used to think, you know, I mean, as I see the Lord in front of me in, in, in the Eucharist, I always used to think of the Lord sitting with the Father in heaven, which is so. But now lately the thought has arisen, given that our Lord is also in, this, in the Eucharist, in, in the monstrance. The thought has arisen that in my mind that maybe does he still suffer in some way? Is, is, is he bound up? 
how how does that work? I thought that the Lord was in in a complete bliss and joyfulness in heaven. Does he still undergo suffering? Well, if you'll listen to my Rednall mini retreat talk, <laughs> I discussed this on some level. It's not me. It's actually Thomas Acklin, a Benedictine, who wrote this beautiful book called the uh, what was it called the something of the Lamb. What was the? I'm sorry, I, it, it slips on my mind. But his name is Thomas Acklin. Uh, and he has this extraordinary reflection that we believe in our, our Lord as being omnipotent and omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing, that it's in our minds part of the definition of God. But how many of us have, have thought of and reflected upon in faith as omnisuffering? that Christ takes upon himself the sin of the world and all the suffering that it brings to all men and women of all time. There's not one thing that we suffer, not one thing that we endure that he has not taken upon himself. It's and the passion of the lamb. The passion of the lamb is called, right. And, uh, and so if we believe that if we believe in this, then we understand that he's present to us in every one of our sorrows, that we never suffer in isolation. You know, I think it's when we aren't thinking about this, when we don't see this, you know, that part of his love is self-emptying and part of his compassion is to be present in and with us in every suffering that we undergo. That the passion is not simply the historical event, you know, that took place for a certain number of hours, that the actions of Christ, the events of Christ are eternal, that self-emptying love uh, and passionate love for us and mercy for us in our suffering is something that is eternal and all-encompassing and for christian men and women this should give us the, in a sense the greatest of consolation even when we do not feel it that christ is present to us in those moments of greatest darkness and isolation and that we're never in fact isolated and we're never alone because of the passion and we don't often live that way, uh, as if we under, understand that. You know, I think the again wrapping our we wrapping our minds around you know the idea of a God that is all knowing or all powerful seems easier to us than uh, an all suffering God. You know, a God who you know enters into all that we endure out of love. Anthony. Thank you, Father. Yes, I also had great trouble with that, how to reconcile the joy of heaven and uh, God that suffers with us. And uh, to me, one thing that I have found is that in 
even in the greatest struggles that I have had, there can be joy if I, when I feel the Lord present in my heart, I can be joyful even in the middle of this great struggle. So, you know, to me that has kind of reconciled Elizabeth, you know, this, that they are not incompatible, that uh, the joy of the Lord, that peace, that not, nothing in the world can take away can be experienced even in the midst of great suffering. That's right. And, you know, I wouldn't want to be cavalier, and I try not to be so whenever talking about suffering, you know, even in this way, in the way that we're talking about it now, because I think our experience of it and the experience of so many in the world is even beyond our imagination, uh, what people have gone through and are going through at the moment. Uh, but there is something about this, you know, of not being in isolation, that the, the sorrow becomes part of, of the cross, becomes part of the joy of the resurrection and the life that all will come to know in and through their faith in him. That uh, he enters into that reality of our life, not in an abstracted way, as an outside observer, nor would he have our experience of his love be an abstract or notional reality, but there would be a real participation in that love, a real union and communion in that love, so that even in our suffering out of love for him, we come to understand and experience something of the depth of that love. This is, you know, Rem was talking about Edith Stein's book, The Science of the Cross, and this is would be the science of it, you know, our entering into that reality in and through our faith in order to comprehend what seems impossible or intolerable in the eyes of the world through the eyes of faith becomes the, the wisdom of God and the love of God is made present through it. And, you know, I think we often experience that part of us when we're afflicted that despises it, you know, because of the reality of it. Uh, and in that we experience with Christ something of the agony of the garden where he sweats blood when faced with that reality. Uh, and so, you know, affliction sort of demands that. And his weeping at Lazarus' tomb also reveals to us, you know, the, the sorrow in the face of what sin has brought to the world. And he sees it in all of its fullness, not only for Lazarus, his friend, but what that reality means for all of us. You know, the tears were shed for us, not for Lazarus alone. And uh, when we are invited into that relationship and when we receive the Holy Eucharist and we experience suffering, you know, there's a part of us that recoils and would want to say with Christ, if you, you know, if it, uh, if it's possible, let this cup pass me by. How could we not say that? But 
in a one in union with Christ, we would also add, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. That we have such a faith in that love and in the power of that love. And even the fact that the suffering born for us was redemptive, that we also have faith that what a suffering we endure in union with him is also redemptive. This is why, you know, Paul could say we make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. We are invited to participate in the most intimate way in his love, redemptive love of the cross. And so, you know, we see in the saints this gradual movement you know, from the fear and the anxiety, I think that we often experience to, you know, a deeper embrace in faith or acceptance in faith of, of that reality. And then eventually, you know, to a full embrace in love, you know, absent the fear and the anxiety. And, you know, I think in our embrace of it, we also come to know an intimacy with others. I think those who suffer from the same things as others who have gone through certain things, you know, they have this capacity, I think, to love and know what another person is going through because they have experienced it. They, they can empathize, you know, in a different kind of way. And we see that in some of the saints, you know, who experienced the gulags and things like that. You know, they came out of those experiences, you know, changed, you know, in their understanding of everything about the faith, including everything about suffering. Okay. Any other thoughts? Powerful reflection. You know, read, read it over again when you have a chance. John 6, 2, would be a good one to reread. Okay. So next time it will be, I think the title's Hour and Eternity. So we're going to be taken even deeper into the mystery, which I don't know how that's possible, but somehow he's going to do it. Uh, but I, I look forward to it. It looks, it looks wonderful. Okay. So thank you all for coming tonight. And don't forget to turn your clocks, unfortunately, forward. Uh, so it's actually 930, not 830, I'm sorry to say. And, uh, and uh, so you don't miss mass tomorrow morning. But if you right. have adoration, don't change your clock until 2am because it doesn't actually change till 2. That's right. So we actually lose an hour tonight, right? So the two o'clock person is off for the night. <laughs> is off for the night. Wow, yeah. poor guy. Okay. Well, won't we close as always with our prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you. 
Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. And just a reminder to everyone, too, the oratory lecture will be next Saturday night instead of the fourth Saturday of this month. So on March 20th, Father Michael will be doing his lecture on Caravaggio. And I think that's because Holy Week is coming up after that, right? In part, yeah. In part, right. Okay. So happy Lent, everybody. Keep Thank at you, it. Father. Good night. And thanks for coming. Good night, Father. Good night, Thank everybody. You. You're welcome. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Good night, Father. Thank you, Father. Good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs> Thank you all. Wonderful as always. <laughs>